following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. All right, anybody have an argument this week? Anybody? Argument? Come on, I want to admit it. Okay, nobody. One, one, two people. How many had disagreement with somebody? Disagreement? Oh, there you go. A lot more of that. Not an argument, just a disagreement. All right. Yeah, sometimes they're fun, you know, it's whether it's Green Bay or Kansas City, you know, that kind of thing, or sometimes they're not fun, where it's some sort of personal habit or issue. Sometimes they're serious, but they're always intended by God to actually clarify things. In fact, there's some crazy verses in your Bible that actually talk about disagreements and division even. And uh, in fact, one of them that always comes to mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. Paul makes this statement to the Corinthians who are divided and factious and arguing, etc. He says, For there must also be factions among you. Why? So that, here's the purpose, that those who are approved may become evident among all. In other words, the, the redeemed would be obvious in the midst of a faction, that they would stand for truth. Uh, that they would rise up and do what is right, that they would seek to please the Lord over pleasing themselves. Uh, one of the wonderful joys of your eldership in this three days that we've had together, which is a three-day elder meeting, is the fact that we're still one heart, one mind. I can announce that with uh, total consciousness and uh, total freedom. Uh, and the fact that uh, it's a delight to be a part of a group of men that desire only what God has to say for our uh, our church and what God teaches, etc., it's incredible. But that's part of what disagreements do uh, in the sense of the negative side of that is that they refine us. When we are in a conflict or disagreement or some issue when working out, it's that we're seeking the one will of Christ for us and seeking that He would be exalted and that He would be manifested. And the Bible even tells that that process is what goes on. Uh, there's many of us today who are so committed to our own pleasure and our own convenience that anytime we have a disagreement, it's a major bummer. You know, it's a big negative. When actually sometimes those issues clarify things, do they not? They bring us into a sense of one heart, one mind. They refine, we help understand our differences and how we can function together. Anybody with me on that? So that's what you do. Well, that's what's going on in Galatians. That's what's happening between Peter and Paul. So if you're new with us, we're studying the book of Galatians verse by verse. We're now in chapter 2, so please open your Bibles there and take your outline and follow along because this conflict between Paul and Peter is talked about now in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And it uncovers, it clarifies, it glorifies the truth of the Gospel. This conflict was necessary in order to bring about salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. It was necessary for this to occur. It was necessary for Peter to mess up so that it could be very clear among the apostles, very clear among the churches, that what the true gospel is. Which is an amazing thing to think about. The Reformation, which you know about, Luther, Calvin, etc., was basically a battle for the true gospel. Those who are truly the remnant today are those who embrace the true gospel. 
And the difference often, not always, often between a real believer and a make-believer is the true gospel in that sense. So read aloud with me, if you would, the conflict that exposes the truth of the message of the gospel between Paul and Peter, starting in verse 11 through 16 from your outline. Let's read it together. Here we go. Ready? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You do so good at reading. Thank you. Those of you who chickened out, God will, God will forgive your sin sick, shriveled up soul. So, what's happening at the end of chapter two is Paul continues his argument against these Judaizers who've made their way into the churches of Galatia, twisted the gospel of grace and turned it into a gospel of works or religiosity. And now Paul crosses into this very uncomfortable realm of family wrangling. All right? This is an issue between two incredible men. Instead of keeping this church conflict a secret, Paul actually exposes the details of this very intense confrontation with the great Apostle Peter himself. And again, the goal of this is that the Gospel would be clarified. This was a significant event in the early church. This moment that we're reading about today. And because it wasn't as clear as it should have been. And after this event, it's both clear in Jerusalem as well as around the world. A very important event. Paul doesn't do this again to hang out the church's dirty laundry or to support today's warped view of total transparency, uh, but to clarify the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Paul just affirmed in verse 9, if you look back there, that Peter had given he and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Peter and Paul were both Jewish. They were both born again. They were both apostles. They were both theologically sound. They both affirmed each other's ministries. Peter to the Jews. Paul to the Gentiles. They were colleagues, not competitors. Each respected the other. So why does Paul then describe this conflict to the troubled churches in Galatia? Well, note the very first word in verse 11. What's he say there? Come on, look at it. He says what? But, he's contrasting. In the previous paragraph, Paul described how the leaders of the Jerusalem church, including Peter, had agreed with him and agreed with Barnabas regarding the test case of Titus. Titus is the main focus of these previous verses. And basically, nobody required Titus, a Gentile convert to Christianity, to follow the law 
and especially to be circumcised to become a Christian. So they have clearly stated, you know, this particular fact which clarifies the truth of the gospel, that the law contributes nothing to a person's salvation. If you're confused about the law, it is the written statements in the scripture that by keeping that somehow you've earned your salvation. Another way that we might look at it today is living good, you know, being nice, being moral, that would then somehow earn your way of salvation. So that's what we're talking about when you say keeping the law. But when Peter arrived in Antioch, okay, Paul's there, he came later, his actions openly contradicted his beliefs. In fact, his beliefs didn't match his behavior. Now, Peter and Paul had agreed on the implications of the gospel while in Jerusalem. But look at verse 14. Look at that for a second there. Peter was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And as Peter faced massive peer pressure from some, and get this right, externally super godly, super godly, but phony Jewish believers were pressing these potential Gentile converts in Antioch to become Jews first so that they could be saved. It's a big deal. And Peter began to give in to the pressure of custom. Peter began to give in to the pressure of religion, the pressure of culture, the pressure of what was familiar, the pressure of long-term relationship, his upbringing, the pressure of history. Peter slowly and continually started to act again like it wasn't a sin to not eat kosher. You know, that it was a sin. In fact, Peter, the Jew, had flip-flopped in his attitudes and actions toward the Gentiles at Antioch and only when these Jewish hardliners from Jerusalem showed up. So these folks, and again, they weren't just rough and tough legalists. They seemed to be very godly people. And they came in and began to intimidate And Paul tells the Galatians when Peter first arrived in that city where the Gentile ministry was exploding, so all kinds of Gentiles are coming to know Christ, Gentile churches are being established, Peter enjoyed unhibited fellowship and regular non-kosher food. He's he's having pulled pork sandwiches, okay? Der Wiener Schnitzel is good. You know, all this kind of stuff. He's just having a great time around a common table. And now that food is completely forbidden in the Old Testament and traditions and sadly over time certain traditions developed within the Jews that were not in the scripture that forbid them the Jews to even eat with the Gentile and even if the food was kosher so Peter was eating and then now Peter's not eating with the Gentiles and not eating their food now get this you got to get this this is a huge compromise for Peter this is massive for him specifically Peter was the one who introduced the gospel to the Gentiles. Are you remembering that? Do you remember in Acts that God had to work especially hard with Peter to get him to even share the gospel with the Gentiles? Remember that? He brings a vision down from heaven several times with with food that was improper for a Jew to eat. And God says what? Kill and eat. Peter's the one that got the vision that cracks through all of this, and that should have convinced him that the dietary law had been unseated by the Gospel, and this kind of legalism should be demolished by grace, because Peter's the one who introduced it! So do you see the weight of this? This is Peter who's actually introduced the Gospel to the Gentiles, who's now 
kind of fallen back into his Jewish ways. This is a big deal. At his arrival, rather than separating himself, again, he's enjoying time with them, Gentiles, until these legalistic, self-righteous Jewish make-believers showed up and began to pressure all the Jewish believers that were there, especially the Apostle Peter, to separate themselves from the believing Gentiles and the believing Gentile food, and especially even to separate themselves from fellow believers like himself, who happened to be Gentile. So when he first came, he mingled with them, and now he withdrew from them, manifesting those old Jewish barriers again. The, the Jewish folks in the first century were famous for separating themselves. They were well known in the Roman Empire for being isolated. And here they are doing it again. But Peter's doing it. So Paul necessarily confronts Peter. In fact, he gives it right in his face about his hypocrisy. And now Paul describes this confrontation to the Galatians in order to clarify what the gospel really is. If this behavior continued, it would have actually altered the way that people thought of the gospel. It would be tough for us Gentiles today to actually consider ourselves saved. And it would be tough for us to be one heart, one mind with any Jewish believer if this was not taken care of right at the get-go. This behavior was communicating that the gospel didn't tear down walls between races, tear down walls between cultures, tear down walls between backgrounds. This behavior was dividing the church. Are you with it? This is what's going on here. So how did it go down? Well, stay with me now. Number one in your outline, Peter's subtle defection. Peter's subtle defection. Now, you know this. What you truly believe determines how you genuinely behave. And because Peter and Barnabas had not really formed convictions about the crucial gospel truth, they're unable to walk a straight line and do things right here. They haven't formed these convictions when they, when they got pressured in a big way. So what made Peter's behavior so deadly is that again, it's going to undermine the gospel message itself and it's going to divide the church of Jesus Christ. So he has to deal with this. In fact, it would be forever separated because of his actions. It created really one of the darkest days in the history of the gospel. Why? withdrawing from these Gentile believers to, to fellowship only with the Judaizers and, and those people. By, by doing that, Peter was supporting their errant doctrine. These men are coming in the midst of the churches here and they're saying you've got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to become Jewish in order to be saved. If they allow this to incur and this Peter's isolating himself from the Gentile believers, it's going to foster that false belief. Are you getting it? That's what's happening. In fact, Paul is doing anything he can to make sure that the gospel that is by grace alone, through believing, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is preserved for us today. So, look at it. First in your outline, let's look at the clash between the captains here. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. It literally, I stood against him to his face because he stood condemned. Antioch is the location of the first Gentile church. Antioch is the, the launching place for Paul's missionary journeys. Antioch, Bible church, is Paul's sending church. This is a big church. 
And, and the body there was shepherded by a, a team of qualified elders. It was one of the earliest examples of a modern local church. The gospel had taken root there and being lived and proclaimed by the early assembly there. And Paul is here at Antioch. And when Cephas arrives, now Cephas means rock in Hebrew like Peter does in Greek. So Peter arrived. Paul stood against him publicly and personally and face to face. Why? Verse 11, because of his continual actions, he rendered himself guilty. He stood condemned. That means he sinned. He sinned. He's guilty of sin by aligning himself with men that he knew to be in error. He's warming up to the Judaizers here at this particular point who are ruining the churches in Galatia region and the reason for this letter. And because of the harm, confusion, and let me add the hurt that was caused by Gentile and caused upon his Gentile brethren. I mean, would you not be hurt if Peter was your friend and then weeks later he separated himself from you? Come on, would you? Sure. Imagine what it would be like at FBC to be fellowshipping together with Charles Spurgeon and with J.C. Ryle, two of my favorites, week after week, hearing them, eating with them. What a blast that would be to get to know them personally. They're brothers now, they're friends, they, they're men that you looked up to as examples, but men also that you've come to understand intimately. You encourage them, you pray for them, their faces light up when they see you, their face lights up, all that kind of stuff. But about six weeks later, in our midst here, some Baptist believers arrive from Spurgeon's denomination. And you can tell they don't like the way you dress. <laughs> they don't like your hair. They don't like your preferential choices. Uh, they don't like what you eat. They don't like how you use your time. You know, you can tell they're much more strict. You don't buy into it, but over a course of weeks, Spurgeon increasingly only hangs out with them and only eats with them, only talks with them, and only... Even though you were close before, now he barely even acknowledges you. He's forgotten your name already. What would that do to you? Would you be hurt? Come on, would you? You'd be confused. You might think your own behavior's wrong. And greatest horror of all, you might consider becoming a Baptist. That'd be terrible! That might lead you to be a legalist. And worse, Peter's error, his behavior might lead you to embrace an errant gospel which would affect your eternity. Much more serious. So what brought this about with Peter? Look at, secondly, the cause of the compromise. The cause. Verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter has already had the vision of the unclean animals God said kill and eat, which motivated him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Peter already experienced the Jerusalem Council, which declared that Gentiles are not required to follow Jewish religious customs, circumcision, or dietary laws in order to be saved in Christ. Peter already has been in the Antioch for a long season, eating with the Gentiles, and the Bible teaches us in Acts 10 that Peter had already given up Mosaic ceremony. All that has occurred, and yet in verse 12, when these fake false Christian Judaizers came to Antioch, they lied. They pretended to be sent by James, giving false claims of support from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now we know they're lying here because James himself had summarized the decision of the Jerusalem council saying in Acts 15.19, it is my judgment that we do not, what? Trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. In other words, we're not going to make him become Jews. He's already said it. 
MacArthur, John MacArthur adds this, quote, like Peter, James at times had difficulty giving up his lifelong adherence to Mosaic rituals and regulations, and he perhaps still had remnants of prejudice against Gentiles. But he would hardly have sent a delegation of heretics to Antioch to undermine the true gospel and cause the church there nothing but trouble. He would never have been the cause of discord and chaos where there already was spirit-induced harmony and unity. These lying hypocrites were subtle. And they took their time. The tense of the verbs here says it was continual. They just kept working at it. Kind of, you know, looking their nose down, giving little comments, etc. And the verb's form implies that Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles was gradual. It was deceptive. It was ongoing. It wasn't a one-time event. This didn't just happen once. This is happening after week, after week, after week, after week. Day after day. I mean, it's increasing to the point that Peter is now always hanging with the Jews and never hanging with the Gentiles. It progressed to that point. He's declining invites to the Gentiles, accepting them from the Jews only. And again, these false legalists arrive. There's no more pulled pork, no more Doreen schnitzel. It's my Gentile bros are, are just basically dissed. Paul subtly withdrew. And that withdrew, that word is a strategic military disengagement. So it's intentional. In fact, the word aloof, when it says he remains aloof here, it, it really means intentionality of separation. Intentionally isolating from them. My beloved Peter does it again. Don't you love Peter? Come on. Anybody love Peter as much as I do? The man of the big mistake. The foot-shaped mouth. I mean, this guy is awesome. And he acquiesced to both the ritualism and the racism of the Jews and subtly drifted away from his Gentile brothers. And by doing so, he was affirming the very dietary restrictions he knew the Lord had abolished in Acts 10. And as a result, he was actually distorting the gospel of grace. Now, why did Peter do it? Verse 12 says he was, look at it carefully, fearing the party of the circumcision. Fear was the true motivation behind his defection. He was afraid of losing popularity, of, of somehow dishonoring God. He was afraid they were so influential, they pressured the great Apostle Peter. I mean, these are very godly Jews in that realm of externalism. And even though they were self-righteous hypocrites and promoting a heretical doctrine, they had incredible influence. And the big concern here was not merely their influence over Peter, but thirdly in your outline, the concern over the concession. What's happened? Look at verse 13. What's happening here? The rest of the Jews joined him. Oh no! In hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now the rest of the Jewish believers fell into compromise too. They're all now remaining aloof. Now you're watching the church get divided. The Jewish folks are over here, and the Gentiles are over here, and man, it's not one heart, wine, and mind anymore. It's divided. And the Greek word hypocrite here is, refers to an actor who puts on a mask and plays the role of someone else, and that's Peter and the Jewish Christians. They're playing the role of someone else. It refers to someone who masks their true character by pretending to be something or someone he or she is not. 
Now, does this go on in the church today? Come on. Do we put on masks? Anybody? Yeah. People who impress you because they're involved in missions somewhere. I go to Siberia twice a year to reach the uh, frozen Russians. You know, I sponsor a mission in Addis Ababa. Whoa, where's that? I went on a short-term team to Syria. We were in danger every day. You know, really impressive stuff. But it gives the impression of maturity and commitment. You dig a little deeper and you'll discover their personal lives, their family relationships, their true characters are wrecked. Don't fall for it. Don't, don't fall for the power of position. Don't grandiose ministry commitments. Hypocrisy is everywhere. Provenness over time is what you're looking for. Not that they do an event here and there. All of us battle with, in this room, presenting ourselves as better than we really are. All of us. But there are those who claim Christ who never grow. They don't deal with their own sin. They don't function biblically within their own family. And there's a level of hypocrisy there that needs to be dealt with. Listen, can I just say something very bold? If you act one way at church and a completely different way at home, you've got something to deal with today. It's called hypocrisy. And God hates it. And I'm not talking about the exception. I'm just talking about your life is radically different at home every week. And somehow at church, you're a totally different guy or gal. That's hypocrisy, friends. And God is nauseated by that sin. It's a big deal. And that's going on here. And here for these believers in Antioch committed to the gospel of grace. But now they're going back to embrace Jewish ceremonies and circumcision and dietary laws. When the great Peter drifts, it begins to subtly make believers feel they're not worthy. They're not measuring up. They're not adequate. The cultural pressure is so great. Now, when the text says this, even the amazingly godly Barnabas gets involved and engaged in this. you you got to see this. He fell in with them and he began to remain aloof and withdraw as well. Now, this is extreme pressure. If Barnabas goes down, this is big time pressure. All right? This is the loving, gracious Barnabas. You know anything about him in the New Testament. This is one of the most loving, gracious, beloved guys. He's, now get this, one of the pastors in Antioch. So it's affected now the leadership in a big way in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas ministered together in Antioch. Both of them had recently gone to Jerusalem Council and talked about in chapter 1 of Galatians. They both had taught together, prayed together, ministered together, suffered together on the first missionary journey together. This is Barnabas here, the one who was the first to befriend Paul and defend him when he was brand new shortly after his conversion in Acts 9. Barnabas knew the Gospel well. He'd heard Paul preach it many, many times. He'd preached it himself. This is Barnabas! Barnabas, the pastor, Barnabas, is withdrawing himself from the Gentiles. He's their pastor! Anybody else worked up about this? Okay. Even Barnabas was carried away. True salvation is by grace. It's a gift from God. It requires our belief, our faith, our trust our surrender heart-wise to Christ, not our works. False salvation is by works and rules and law. And they're starting to act, Peter is and Barnabas, like it's law. They're starting to act like i gotta, I got to do this to please God. You know, it may have been this event 
right here with Barnabas, his hypocrisy here that began the rift with Paul that resulted in their separation over John Mark on the second missionary journey, which is going to take place in a very short time from this moment in Acts 15. So here is separation uh, occurring between Jew and between Gentile, between faith and works, because of Peter's bad example. Plus, these actions are deadly to the gospel and disastrous for our witness as a church, right? If all of a sudden a church is divided, Understand, the true church can never allow ritual, race, class, other distinctions to separate members from each other. Listen, human beings, before salvation, every single human in this room is equally separated from God. Can I hear an amen to that? doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your wealth. doesn't matter who you are. Anything. Your education. But after salvation, every single Christian in this room is equally reconciled to God. Amen to that? That's Galatians, right? Galatians 3, all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. Because believers are all children of God, we are brothers and sisters with no exceptions, no distinctions. All racism is evil defiance against God. All divisions over educational differences or wealth differences or schooling backgrounds. I went to USC. Who cares? Equally evil. God is one and we in Christ are one. And the only way you'll ever honor God who is one is to be one. That's why unity is so vitally important. So vitally, because it's about God and His oneness. Paul's going to stop this for the sake of the church, but most importantly, for the sake of the gospel. Number one, Peter's subtle defection. Now, secondly, Paul's sound doctrine. Paul's sound doctrine. What Peter, Barnabas, and the other believers did was not merely a matter of personal hypocrisy. Uh, it, it was, it was, their capitulation to the Judaizers was fracturing the church and it would eventually distort the gospel. And because Peter and Barnabas were spiritual leaders, this situation is deadly, deadly and damaging. For years, the apostles were teaching salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And they had exemplified that teaching in their lives. The Antioch church had become a model of Jewish Gentile fellowship and harmony. And yet overnight, it was about to crumble into disunity. Overnight! So what happened? First, the confrontation over practice. The confrontation. He says in verse 14, take a look at it, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, whoa, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles, like you were doing, and not like the Jews, how is it now you're going to compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He is sharply rebuking him. Why? They weren't straightforward. Straightforward means, uh, it means, it comes from two words, straight and foot, meaning to walk straight, to live uprightly. They were not living uprightly. They were not being genuine. They were not honoring the truth of the gospel. One scholar translates the phrase this way, they were not walking on the straight path towards the truth of the gospel. By withdrawing from their Gentile brethren, Peter and his uh, compromising crew were not walking in line with God's Word. They were corrupting the truth 
Do you see how, listen, every word in the Scripture is vital. Look at how Paul writes it. Verse 14, the truth of the Gospel. Do you see that? The truth. Any Gospel, not by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not truth and will send you to hell. It has to be. Paul's fighting for eternal souls and that's why he rebukes Cephas in the presence of all. Paul unmasks Peter's hypocrisy in front of the entire congregation at Antioch. Wow! Can you picture that? You know why? Because every single believer in that church witnessed Peter withdrawing from the Gentiles. Every single one of them. He was no longer associating. And they knew it. As he once did before. He had been fellowshipping with them and now he wasn't. Before the Judaizers came, he was loving them and just absolutely no issues at all. The Judaizers come and now he's separate. And because of that, it needed to be dealt with publicly. Now you know this. Private sins are dealt with privately. Personal sins are dealt with personally. And public sins are dealt with publicly. It had to be public. Everybody was aware of it. Everybody was engaged in it. They'd seen it. So in contrast to Peter's hypocrisy, Paul's indictment is very straightforward. Okay, And Paul simply pointed out the obvious inconsistencies in Peter's behavior. And Paul reminded Peter when he first arrived in Antioch, and verse 12 says that Peter had freely fellowship with all the Gentiles. Peter visited their homes. He joined in their love feasts. He took communion with them, showing no evidence of prejudice or legalism. In fact, Peter had, verse 14, lived like the Gentiles and not the Jews. But now that he's separate, Paul addresses the elephant in the room. He looks Peter in the eye and says, how is it that you, look at verse 14, by your ongoing lifestyle continually compelling the Gentiles to adopt their entire lifestyle and live like the Jews? The phraseology there is saying, I want you to abandon being a Gentile and live like a Jew. That's the pressure. And by following the Judaizer path with this behavior, Peter wrongly was declaring that their errant gospel was correct. And this is undoing and unraveling the entire New Testament church. The cultural divisions were now acceptable in the church? Can't be. Paul had no desire to appear superior to Peter, humiliate Peter, but to correct his serious error that had caused many other believers to stumble with him. This isn't just Barnabas. Every Jewish believer in Antioch has succumbed to this pressure. Every single one. Look at the text. It tells you Paul can tolerate nothing that threatens the integrity of the gospel, especially if that threat comes from the most influential leader of the early church, the Apostle Peter. Paul's rebuke of Peter serves as one of the most dynamic statements of the New Testament on the unwavering necessity of doctrine of justification, of salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. Number two in your outline, or secondly, the clarification with doctrinal truth. In verses 15 and 16, catch the word that's repeated three times. Would you catch it? See it? Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we who have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be what? Justified, justified, justified. Paul clarifies what's at stake with Peter's legalistic failure. It's going to undermine justification. How you get saved. 
Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners among the Gentiles. Sometimes you read stuff in English, you're like, what does he mean there? What's he talking about there? What's he saying is that we've got all these advantages of being a Jew. We, we've, we've got the law of God. We, we understand God's character. So a Jew would not live overtly sinful on their external behavior because they follow the law. But, but, the Gentiles didn't have this law. And they were more known for external sins, right? Things that you could see, drunkenness and licentiousness and all kinds of horrible stuff. And so basically what he's saying is that we Jews, we have these special privileges from God. We may not be guilty of these overt, outward, super graphic public sins, but we are saved in the same way they are. You say, what do you mean? Well, you'd expect Paul to say, well, these Gentiles must be saved the same way we Jews are. That's not what he says. He reverses it. He says salvation did not mean that the Gentiles had to become like Jews. Are you ready? The Jews had to sink to the level of the obviously condemned, sinful, lifestyle Gentiles. What's he saying here is this. Catch this. They, the Jews, had to see their sin to be justified. By the way, you need to see your sin to be justified. You have to realize that you can do nothing before a holy God, that you stand condemned, that He should condemn you because of the way that you behave in heart and in behavior. You stand condemned before a holy God and you're crying out for mercy and that's what grace is all about. God gives you His grace. Can I hear an amen to that? That's what He does. That's the Gospel. And Paul argues in verse 16, we're justified given a right standing before God by faith in Christ. Not living good, not the works of the law will never justify anyone. Jew or Gentile, no Jew, no good man, no one will ever be saved by keeping the law ever. Paul really pounds that truth and repetition of justified three times. Three times it says salvation is only through faith in Christ and not by the law. It, it refers to past, present, and future in justification. And the basic use of the term justified means a judge declaring an accused person not guilty, therefore innocent before the law. I mean, you are the worst criminal on planet earth. You've come before the best and perfect judge. And he says to you, on the basis of the work of his son, not guilty. And you don't suffer what you deserve forever. Because he declares you not guilty, justified. That's justification. Throughout Scripture, justification refers to God declaring a sinner not guilty. Fully righteous before Him by imputing the divine righteousness of Christ and imputing the man's sin, your sin, to the sinless Savior for punishment. R.C. Sproul, justification, he says, is the act by which unjust sinners like you are made right in the sight of a just and holy God. And to make certain we understand it, the full weight of justification, he also repeats in these two verses three times, not by the works of the law. Can you, please answer this, yes or no, earn your salvation? No. Uh, it should be a little bit more vehement, a little more spittle, a little more wrath in your voice there. No! No! A thousand times no. It must be the grace of God. It must be God lavishing you with His grace giving you forgiveness, declaring you not guilty. It must be Him. Keeping the law, obeying the law, being a good person, living by a moral code, even living by a Christian code of ethics is a totally unacceptable means of salvation because the root of sinfulness is the fallenness of a man's heart, not his behavior. 
It's your heart that's a problem. It's your fallen sinful heart that is totally depraved and totally corrupt and unable to live pleasing to God. The law was not a map for you to follow that you could find salvation. The law is a mirror to show you your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. One more time. What's the law for? It's not a map that you follow so that you can find salvation. It, the law is a mirror, not a map, but a mirror to show you your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. The law served as a mirror to reveal sin, not cure it. And this is what Paul means in Romans 7.7. 7. He says, is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin and understand how condemned I am before a holy God if, except through the law. The law showed me that. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It shows us our sin. God designed the law to show us our sin and then take us by the hand and lead us to Christ. Like a tutor. We'll talk about that next week. Galatians 3.24 The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Friends, raise your hand. Have you ever lied? Come on, put them up. Ooh, oh, oh, you ever stolen? Ever. Okay. Ever been angry? Unrighteous? Oh, look at these people. I'm starting to feel dirty. Ever, ever selfish? Anybody selfish? Anybody the king of selfish? Yeah. You stand condemned. I stand condemned before a holy God. And you'll never be able to make things right on your own. No law. No living good. You can't do it. He's absolutely perfect. And has been in eternity past. And will be perfect and righteous and holy in eternity future. And any one sin cannot stand in His presence. But Christ can save you. He paid for sin on the cross. He rose from the dead and is alive. And if you cry out and say, please give me a new heart. Give me the faith to believe. Help me to see my sin and turn from it. Then you can be saved, forgiven, covered in His righteousness, made right with Him now, and ready for eternity forever. You can. But the only way is to turn to Christ. There is no other way. There is no other faith. There is no other religion. Only Christ. You can have Christ. You can do that today. Or you can come back next week. You can do it throughout the week. You can do it on Monday. People get saved on Monday. So take this home. There are a great many truths from this passage. Let me give you just a few. Number one, leaders be encouraged. And we have a lot of leaders in our church. People who lead ministry, people who 
organized people, all kinds of things. Peter made a lot of mistakes, didn't he? He remained above reproach. Thank the Lord, would you today, that he uses flawed, sinful people for his purposes? As long as they remain humble, as long as they admit their sin, as long as they're dependent, as long as they're not defiant with their sin. Honestly, look at the fact that this event with the Apostle Peter is in the Scripture. Peter's maybe 30, 40 years old, you know, somewhere in this category. He's got a lot of life, life to live yet. Um, and yet God used him. God used his sin to instruct the church over justification by grace alone. Can you imagine that? His massive mistake was used by God. You don't see him crumbling. You don't see him falling apart. You just see him confessing, you know, moving on in ministry for God's glory, to impact others for Christ. Uh, leaders, be encouraged. God can use you in spite of those times you've fallen on your face. Just stay humble. Now, there are some consequences to certain sins that are devastating, and you, you shouldn't go down that road. But understand, He can even take those things and make beautiful things out of it. If you're humble, if you're broken, if you're repentant, if it's genuine, He can do incredible things with that kind of heart. Amen? Number two, make believers be drawn. Listen, again, on this whole issue of hypocrisy, faithfulness involves more than believing right doctrine. Faith without works is dead. Faith that saves is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. There will be fruit. Right doctrine without right behavior produces hypocrisy. No one's perfect, but big ministry commitments don't make you holy. Even your positions don't make you holy. It's your walk with Christ. And if you're somehow in a major inconsistency at school, from here, from here, to work, from here, to home, and no one knows, God knows. And He's working on your heart today to get you to admit it and to repent and possibly cry out for salvation or deal with sin. If you're a saint at church and you're sick at home, you've got to deal with this. Number three, evangelists beware. You know, truth is more important than outward harmony, especially when it involves how one is saved. And you see this with Paul. It's like, hey, you know, hey, let's all hold hands together. He's like, nope, not now. Not when you're going to lead the church into division. Not when you're going to lead the church into wrong doctrine. When you're going to actually corrupt the actual gospel of salvation. Then, then truth overrules my relationship with you. It does. And it doesn't mean that Paul was mean. It just means he spoke the truth. And evangelists, beware that sometimes you have to tell the truth. That this is not the way of salvation. This is not going to get you into heaven. This does not make you right with God. And you must tell them. If you don't tell them, then the Spirit has nothing to use to convict them. 
You must tell them the truth of justification by grace through faith alone. Amen? You have to tell them. Don't let them sit in their false religion. Don't let them sit in their pseudo-Christianity. Tell them the truth. And number four, learners, listen carefully. God's Word, not situations, not individual Christian leaders, not apostles, it's God's Word that drove Paul to speak. It's God's Word that is your lens and your authority. Paul is not saying, I'm better than you, Peter. Paul wasn't saying that. Listen, even on Sunday, wait, 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 wait. Even on Sunday, I'm never telling you I'm better than you. Ever. I'm telling you what God says that we're all under. Are you with me? You get an hour of it. i got to deal with it all week long. Pounding away at my heart and life. That's our authority. Christian, the Word of God is your authority. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for a Gospel that is by grace through faith, that we don't have to earn it. Father, that You're the one who's provided it. And Father, we would pray that You might work in the hearts of some to draw them to Yourself. And Father, for the rest of us, might we be bolder with the truth of the Gospel with those who don't embrace it. And may we also live by it, knowing that we don't have to earn our salvation, that, that it's done, it's finished on the cross, that we are under Your grace and always will be if we're children. Help us to rejoice in that and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.